Good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. Uh, Should we pray together? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for all the children and young people that have gone out to learn more about you this morning. We pray for those who are leading them, those who are teaching them. We pray, Lord, that you pour out your blessing on them and that they would discover more about your amazing love for them today. And we pray, too, for ourselves now as we open your word. May our eyes be open to see something new, something exciting about the truth about our wonderful Savior this morning. Speak to us, we pray. May we learn. May we be encouraged. May we be transformed and changed by your word this morning. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for those who don't uh, know you, know you, know me even, <laughs> um, <laughs> add my uh, welcome to Chris's. I'm on the leadership team here too at um, CBC, and it's just wonderful to see new people amongst us again this morning. Um, it's my joy as well to continue our journey to Jerusalem together as we uh, look at Luke's gospel, continue to look at Luke's gospel this week. Uh, so if you have a Bible with you or your phone, uh, if you could turn to chapter 18 of Luke, that would be really helpful as we work our way through the last little bit um, from verse 35 of Luke 18. As many of you know, I've got uh, two daughters, twins, um, when my girls were about nine, one of them um, had to have an operation at Bristol Children's Hospital. And uh, we were living in Cheltenham at the time, so about an hour's drive away. And so we took the girls for a day out in, uh, in Bristol. One journey down the M25, two very different reasons for going. As we travelled uh, there, there was excitement and expectation from one of our daughters going to Bristol, looking at museums and parks and having an ice cream. But for the other... It was very different. Expectation of hospital, of having an operation, of the unknown, of the uncertainty of it all. One journey, very different expectations, very different outcomes. And through Lent, we're following Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, aren't we? As told by Luke. And today, Luke's taking us back, reminding us again for the third time that there's a reason why Jesus is taking this journey to Jerusalem. The Jews are also making a journey to Jerusalem at the moment. They're on a pilgrimage to celebrate the Passover, most important festival in the Jewish calendar. It's great expectation around the families as they gather to be together, preparing food, finding somewhere to stay. The disciples are excited as they follow with Jesus. But Jesus is on the same journey, same journey to Jerusalem, very different expectations, very different expectations about what's going to happen when he arrives there. So as Jesus and his disciples move ever closer to Jerusalem, they're only about six or eight hours walk away now. Not long now, it's Easter, is it? Jesus seeks to share again this heavy burden that he's carrying of what's going to happen when he arrives in Jerusalem. He wants his closest friends to know and understand his reason for his journey to Jerusalem. So let's look first at um, Luke 18, 31 to 34. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him. They'll flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Disciples didn't understand any of this. 
its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Well, these disciples were able to see, but they don't understand. With the benefit of hindsight, and for those of us who are Christians here this morning, maybe have been for many years, we understand exactly what Jesus is talking about, don't we, this side of the cross? But the disciples, they didn't, they didn't get it. They didn't understand. Of course, the Jews at the Passover are remembering how God delivered them from Egypt, um, and they're looking for a promised saviour like that, a Messiah who will come and rescue them again. They want to be rescued from their oppressors, and they want to have freedom. They want a new life, a different life. They, they're expecting their Messiah to do that. And that is, of course, what the Scriptures promise. But Jesus says that's not it. That's not the whole story of what the Scriptures say. That's what he's trying to explain to his disciples. He encourages them to think again about what the prophets say about the Messiah, that he would be a suffering servant. He would be one who'd be mocked and insulted and spat on, flogged and killed, but he would rise again. This was totally outside of what the disciples were expecting or imagining. They simply don't understand what Jesus is saying. I don't know, maybe they didn't want to understand. Maybe they didn't want to hear this. They didn't want to think about suffering. Things were going so well, weren't they, with Jesus? I mean, it was exciting being on the road with him, seeing him doing all those miracles, all those healings. Maybe it was just too much to comprehend right now. But Jesus, he knew. He knew what was ahead. And he knew, too, that one day the penny would drop for them, that the things that he was telling them now, even though they didn't understand now, would eventually fall into place for them. He knew that one day that they would look back and they would realize that his death wasn't an unplanned accident, as it might have seemed, that it wasn't some unfortunate event that happened because of a few disgruntled and angry leaders who wanted to get rid of him. Jesus wants his disciples to know that he is the Messiah, but that he has got to suffer and to die. And of course, they do eventually understand, don't they? Listen to Peter in his first sermon that he preaches after Jesus has risen from the dead and he's filled with the Spirit. He says, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him. As you know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. He gets it now. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But also he gets this, doesn't he? But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God is fulfilling his plan of salvation. It was communicated through the prophets long ago. And Luke is keen for us as his readers now and his, and his listeners then to see this story is unfolding as we take this journey with Jesus to Jerusalem. It got me thinking about whether we can be a bit like the disciples and we kind of want to sanitize our Christian faith a bit. We long for the happy, pain-free life, a life without any complications or any demands as Christians. I guess like the disciples, we like the good stuff, don't we? We like the, uh, the highs of being a Christian, the fantastic sermons, the, the wonderful worship, the healings, the miraculous that goes on. But do we tend to want to avoid thinking about the cost of commitment that comes with being a Christian, the pain of the cross, the call that we have not to follow this, this valiant warrior, that, but a suffering servant, a suffering servant who gave up everything for us, a suffering servant who understands what it means to have pain, 
a suffering servant who faced suffering, experienced it all for us, for our sakes. And it calls us to actually a very different way of life. Well, the journey that Luke takes his reader on towards Jerusalem is definitely a journey of contrast, isn't it? We start to see the different reasons. The contrast, if you like, between light and dark, between joy and despair, between bondage and freedom. So here Jesus speaks of his death and his suffering. But then in a moment or two, as we will read, he brings sight to a beggar on the street. Tom Wright says, uh, the journey is at once puzzling and dark joyful and bright. Isn't that what we're discovering each week as we go through this journey? Puzzling and dark, what's going on? Joyful and bright healings, exciting things happening. It's so true, isn't it? It's true today of our story. Because of course, Jesus promises that there will be a new age coming, a new kingdom coming, seeing glimpses of it here in the Gospels. The powers of that new kingdom already at work in, in and through Jesus. And of course, where Jesus is, People's lives are changed, aren't they? If you think back to last week, to the ten lepers, wow, their lives were changed, weren't they? Outcast and marginalized by society, healed and given a new life by Jesus. And so we're going to move from the disciples with this inability to understand, this inability to see what Jesus is talking about, to see that there's a blind beggar there who has incredible Absolutely incredible insight. So let's read on in the story. I'm going to read from verse 35. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him, be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Just like the lepers last week, this poor man was marginalized. He was in poverty. Society didn't want to know. Forced to beg on the streets of Jericho. And here we find him in this story begging, possibly on a, on a route where the pilgrims are passing on their way to Jerusalem, hoping, hoping that they might feel a bit more generous at this time of year. But he notices that there's something different about this crowd that's going past. Perhaps there's a bit more excitement, perhaps they're chattering a bit more than usual. And so he finds out what's going on and he discovers Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Well, I, I guess... Uh, news of Jesus and these miracles and his healings must have made their way to Jericho, mustn't they? I think we can safely assume that this beggar has heard something about Jesus. The news was spreading far and wide. I wonder if he'd heard the news of the, um, of the man born blind that had been healed by Jesus. I wonder if the blind community were talking about this amazing Jesus that was doing these incredible healings. Luke brings in a contrast here, doesn't he? A contrast between the inability, the inability of, the, of the disciples to see what Jesus is saying just a few moments ago or just a few verses ago with this blind man who has such an incredible insight into who Jesus is without even having met him because he cries out, Jesus, son of David. Jesus, son of David. This is the only time in the whole of his gospel that Luke uses this phrase, son of David. It's a 
a well-known phrase for Jesus. It's not just about his genealogy, although it, of course, is that. But it's about him being the Messiah. It's a messianic title for Jesus. And so when he cries out, Son of David, he's making a declaration to everyone who's listening that this is the long-awaited Messiah. Everyone else called him Jesus of Nazareth, just another Jesus in the area. But no, he's not. He's the long-awaited Messiah, the long-awaited deliverer. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets. That's what this blind man understands. This is what he's got hold of. Exactly what Jesus was just trying to explain to his disciples. And he realizes, hang on a minute, I've got a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to meet this person. This person who could change my life forever. What incredible faith. Don't you think he's got such incredible faith, this man? He's chosen, without ever meeting Jesus, but hearing about him, to trust that Jesus is the one who can rescue him from his helpless state. He needs mercy. Son of David, have mercy on me, he says. He understands that he needs the mercy of God. Not because he's physically blind. He's not actually referencing being blind. He's asking for mercy from God. His blindness isn't due to his sin, Important to reference that. Jesus never once implies that it is. In fact, if you go back to the healing of the man born blind, Jesus makes it very clear it wasn't due to his sin. But this man is aware of his mercy, that that he needs Jesus' mercy, and he knows where he needs to go, who he needs to see. Significance of faith in our journey as Christians Somewhere, at some point, this blind beggar has made a decision that he would put his hope, he put his trust in Jesus, that he was the Messiah. He seems to have grasped, doesn't he, some deeper truth about Jesus. Something about who Jesus was and what Jesus was offering. And the blind beggar, as I say, is so much more aware that that he has not just a physical need, but something much deeper that he's actually unworthy to come into the presence of this Messiah unless this Messiah shows him mercy. We all need the mercy of God, don't we? Because we've all sinned. We all need that mercy because we've all sinned. The Bible says that we all deserve punishment from God. But you know, to be shown mercy, the word mercy means that God doesn't treat us as we deserve. God longs to show us mercy. He doesn't want to treat us as we deserve. But I wonder this morning, do we recognize that we have that need? And do we trust that God will meet that need and show us mercy? And all we have to do is cry out to him. And as we read, this this beggar, this this blind man was completely undeterred, wasn't he, by the rebuke of of, of, of those around him who told him to be quiet, Jesus isn't interested in you. They rebuked him for shouting out, but he just cried all the louder, didn't he? I'm not going to miss this opportunity to meet my saviour. And I just want to add in a quick aside there because I want to focus on his encounter with Jesus. But we've got a man here who's searching for Jesus. He's desperate to meet Jesus. And the disciples, those who are walking alongside Jesus... Following Jesus, they tried to prevent this man from meeting him. And I just wonder why. Why did they not want to? Did they think that he wasn't important enough? 
that he wasn't good enough. Uh, his standing in society didn't allow him to be included in this crowd. Did they think he might be a bit of a nuisance or he would be too hard because of his particular needs to have him on board? Well, we don't really know what the reason was, but whatever their reason, they kept telling him to shut up, to be quiet, didn't they? And I just wrestled with the question this week. I wonder, are we guilty of making a judgment on who we think is good enough, the right sort of person to be invited into God's kingdom? I wonder if there are ways that I am guilty or you're guilty of silencing, of ignoring the very people who are crying out to know Jesus, that who need Jesus. Those people in our society who are marginalised, those who are lacking in hope today, pushed aside by society, those who are crying out for Jesus. Are we preventing them from hearing the gospel, from meeting Jesus, or are we making it easy to invite them in, to welcome them, to hear the good news? just want to read on in the story, Luke uh, 18.40. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. Well, we've already underlined the fact that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's got a very specific purpose for getting there. And really nothing will deter him from what he needs to do in Jerusalem. But here we have this sudden, unexpected turn, as we should get used to in the Gospel of Luke, shouldn't we? Something different happening. Jesus stops. Jesus stops and asks to meet the man who's cried out for him. This man crying out from the very depths of his soul for mercy from the Messiah. And Jesus stops. His soul cry captures Jesus' attention and stops him in his tracks. You know, Jesus responds to the tiniest seed of faith. Jesus responds to the tiniest seed of faith. We don't need a huge amount of faith, just a tiny seed. You know, Jesus can't help himself from responding when our hearts cry out to him for mercy. When we cry out from a place of repentance, when we cry out to God, he is trustworthy. He is merciful. He longs. He longs to show mercy. This man may not have had any physical sight, but his understanding, his insight of not only who Jesus is, but also of his own need of mercy is really quite crystal clear, isn't it? And Jesus, in his, his response to this man by stopping and speaking to him, is confirming what this man has declared. Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. I am your saviour. Beautiful picture here of the fact that Jesus is never too busy to, to respond to us. Never too busy. Jesus will always stop. Always stop when we cry out to him. We're valued. We're important to God. And you may feel this morning that your sin is a barrier stopping you. But it's not. Don't let it be. Our sin isn't a barrier from stopping us from crying out to God. In fact, I'd go as far as to say that it's our knowledge of our sin, it's our failings and our mistakes of letting God down, of doing our own thing, that draw us towards God, that push us, or should we let, let it, let them push us towards God? Let them take us to his mercy as we understand that we need him. 
C.H. Spurgeon says of God's mercy, God's mercy is so great that you may sooner drain the sea of its water or deprive the sun of its light than diminish the great mercy of God. That's what we're talking about. That's what this blind man somehow seemed to grasp and understand. Links becoming clear for Luke as he writes his gospel. The blind man is beginning to understand and eventually the disciples will be able to see that Jesus has to go through pain and suffering, pain and suffering of the cross to secure that mercy, that glimpse of mercy, that glimpse of the new kingdom that we see in this story. Jesus has to go on that journey to Jerusalem. And then the last little bit of our story takes us to verse, I'll read verse 40 again. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. And when he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight, your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. With all the, and all the people saw it. They also praised God. Fantastic end to that story. He's able to see, and he follows Jesus. It's a bizarre question, isn't it? Or is it just me that thinks it's bizarre? What do you want me to do for you? I think if I was that man, I might have been a bit frustrated by that question, because... Surely it's obvious, isn't it? Isn't it obvious, Jesus? Why does, why does Jesus need to ask me what I want from him? Can't he see what's the matter? But I love this because Jesus doesn't make any assumptions, does he? He's not going to bulldoze over us when we come to him. When we come to him in vulnerability, as this man has done, Jesus is so loving, he's so gentle, he's so compassionate. He invites us in to be part of the journey. He doesn't he doesn't dictate to us. He loves us. He values us. He wants to hear what we need. And I think being asked his opinion, being invited to share his story with Jesus, gave this man incredible dignity, gave him worth and value. He'd probably never experienced in his life. People had probably always assumed they knew what he needed. They'd always helped him when he may not have needed it deprived his whole life of that dignity, that value, that love, that in that moment, Jesus gives to him. Jesus stops this morning. Jesus stops this morning with that same love, with that same compassion, with that same gentleness. I believe he's inviting us to answer that question as well this morning. What do you want me to do for you? This blind beggar, he, he could have asked for, can I have enough money, please, to live comfortably for the rest of my life so I don't have to beg? He could have said, I'm hungry. Could I have some food? Could I have a new mat to sit on or a new cloak? Or could I have a care package that would sustain me for the rest of my life? But here we find this blind man trusting Jesus so completely that he goes for the chance of a lifetime, doesn't he? He says... I want to see. Lord, I want to see. I really feel this man, when he says, I want to see, he's saying, I want to see you. I want to see Jesus. 
And what I think Jesus wanted was for this man to articulate that, to say that, to speak out the depth of his desires in words to Jesus. So I wonder if you heard that question from Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? How would you articulate your deepest desire this morning? What is your deepest desire this morning before Jesus? I wonder what mine is. I wonder if it's like the blind man. Is your deepest desire this morning to see Jesus? Jesus gives us opportunity this morning to put that deepest desire into words. We're moving closer to Jerusalem. We're moving for us closer to Easter. I love Easter. We're moving closer to Good Friday, to the cross, to the resurrection. And we're reminded by Luke as he homes in on this story of restored sight, of this man receiving his sight back, that Jesus is going to take on the blindness, the despair of the whole world at the cross so that we can have the scales removed from our eyes, so that we can see him for who he really is. And Jesus is inviting us today, now, to receive that forgiveness, to receive that restored sight, all made available because Jesus continued on that journey to the cross. Live in the light of the resurrection, Jesus says. Live in the light of the new kingdom that's come. We're coming to take communion in just a few moments. As we do, as we prepare ourselves, I want us to sit with that question that Jesus is asking us this morning. What do you want me to do for you? Let's be still in a moment. Andrew is going to start playing for us. Let's sit with that question. What do you want me to do for you?